Hi, everyone. It's Ashley. Each week here on the deck, you hear raw interviews from family members and investigators who are looking for answers to cases that, for whatever reason, remain unsolved. But unsolved crimes are often unsolved for a reason. Time has cracked and curved around some of these cases for so long that getting answers has become complicated. Well, now, investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra is turning back the clock to look at an unsolved case from 1991. She's speaking to investigators, key witnesses, and loved ones who are still searching for answers on how exactly 27-year-old Douglas Wagg Jr. died. But here's the thing. While Delia's investigation for this season of Counterclock started as a look into one man's suspicious death, a string of crimes and other mysterious deaths point to so much more. Tune in each week for new episodes of Counterclock Season 6 wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of the mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? With hundreds of mind-teasing puzzles, the next clue is always within reach. You can also chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Love is more than a day on the calendar or a sign-off on a letter. Love starts with you. Show off your personal style with new Pandora jewelry pieces that radiate with your love from every angle. With Pandora's vast selection of rings, bracelets, earrings, necklaces, and charms, there's endless ways to show what's in your heart. Write a love note to yourself or your best friend with handwritten charms or a personal engraving. Shop now at Pandora.net. Pandora. Be love. Our card this week is Elizabeth Miller, the Seven of Hearts from Connecticut. In the summer of 1994, Elizabeth's body was found outside of an abandoned building in an area rife with crime. As the years went by, investigators never uncovered any solid leads, until a pattern of brutal murders began to emerge in the area, leading them to suspect there's more to her story than meets the eye. I'm Ashley Flowers, and this is The Deck. A man named Angel was going about his morning in the Asylum Hill neighborhood of Hartford, Connecticut, collecting cans. This spot wasn't known to be the safest area of town, like pretty high crime rates, a lot of rundown infrastructure, you get the picture. But for Angel, it was the perfect place to find discarded cans. And the relatively cool mid-June weather made it pleasant, all things considered. 
Sometime before 7 a.m., he made his way off the street and walked back behind an abandoned apartment building. The sidewalk led to this overgrown courtyard, and it was there, half covered by the thick foliage, that Angel saw a person lying on their back across the path. At first, he thought they might just be unconscious, but as he took a few steps closer, he knew something much more sinister was going on. The person on the ground appeared to be a middle-aged woman, but he could barely make out her features because her face was swollen beyond recognition. She was fully clothed, but even the clothes weren't super distinguishable because they were covered in blood, as was her head, the sidewalk underneath her, and a bloody pair of flats laying not too far from her bare feet. Angel couldn't really tell if she was breathing. From where he was standing, he couldn't see any movement, but he wanted to be sure. So he reached out and touched her foot, probably hoping she would move or make a noise or something. But she didn't, and he came to the horrible realization that she was already gone. Angel booked it out of the courtyard and rushed back home so he could call the police. And he lived uh, right around the corner on Sigourney Street, not too far away from, from where it happened, and called. And then he ended up meeting the officers back at the spot. That's Detective Drew Jacobson with the Hartford Police Department. And he said it was immediately clear to officers that her death had been violent and that whoever killed her used a lot of force. Here he is again reading from some of the original reports. The victim's face was swollen on the right side with dried blood about her eyes, ears, and nose area. The victim had marks on her neck, but they did not appear to be ligature marks, so it doesn't appear to be like a manual strangulation or anything, but maybe he had grabbed her to try to throw her around. The tops of the shoes appeared to be blood-stained, so she was alive when she was being wounded and the blood was dropping onto her feet. The sole of the left shoe had appeared to have blood on the bottom of it, so now she's walking around and bleeding like crazy, maybe trying to get away from the guy while she's being assaulted. I say guy, it could be a woman, but I'm going to guess based on the traumatic injuries, there was a person of great strength. The victim also had marks on her feet similar to abrasions. She had a pair of light yellow pants on, and the fly portion of the pants was partially down, but the belt was still intact. The victim was wearing a button-down Oxford-style shirt, which was tied below the victim's breasts, exposing her stomach area. The shirt was soaked in blood and blood-spattered droplets. When investigators took a closer look at her clothing, they found an unopened condom in her shirt pocket. And scattered around nearby, they found a green lighter, a clump of dark hair that appeared to be hers, and a single gold earring, a mate to the one that they'd later find under her body when she was removed from the scene. What they didn't find, though, was a purse or wallet or any kind of ID. She wasn't wearing any jewelry, although she may have been wearing the earring, and that came out during the attack. The officers at the scene couldn't move her until the medical examiner got there. But when he did, he was able to get a rough idea of when she died just by looking at her. The medical examiner, who actually went on scene, said the victim was killed sometime during the evening and her body was in full rigor mortis. Before she was taken away for an autopsy, they took an up-close photo of her face, hoping maybe someone would recognize her. They canvassed the Asylum Hill area in Hartford, which is an approximate two-mile radius, where the body of the homicide was found, and showed people in the area a photograph of the victim. But door after door, knock after knock, no one admitted to knowing this woman. 
And there wasn't a single resident in the area that they spoke with who even so much as heard a thing that morning, which was wild because this had been a violent attack. And even though the apartment building itself was abandoned, there were other residences nearby. A lot of people said they never heard anything. One lady said she was up until 4.30 in the a.m. Don't forget, she's found a little bit before 7 a.m. She heard nothing. So it must have been like an ambush style, the way she's assaulted and moved around. The officers kept going, and it took a little while. But later that morning, they finally found someone who recognized her. They actually met with somebody at the Salvation Army and showed a photograph. And the person called her Sylvia. Maybe that was her street name. So they got directed from somebody at Salvation Army to go to this certain building because they saw Sylvia walking in and out of it frequently. This guy, Ronald, I guess, was her good personal friend and said, no, that's Elizabeth, and actually gave the address. This Ronald guy says, oh, no, she lives at 1021 Asylum Avenue and that she has two brothers that also live there. And then was able to give, like, a little bit of a timeline in terms of the last time he saw her. He told investigators that the last time he'd seen Elizabeth was around 11.30 a.m. the day before. That would have been Friday the 10th. He was chatting with her and at least one of her brothers, George Wallace, outside of a local credit union for a bit. And last he saw, she left on foot. Yeah, they went over there and they met with George Wallace, who is the brother, and Johnny Wallace, who's another brother. They show the photograph and they say, yep, that's her. That's my sister. I don't know what their reaction was to finding out their sister had been murdered. Maybe shock, grief, anger, all three. But through whatever they felt, they agreed to go down to the station for interviews. This is an interview with a brother, George Wallace. And he stated that the last time he saw his sister was on Thursday after work, between 3 and 4 p.m. near the intersection of Ashley and Atwood Streets, which is only a few blocks away from where her body was found. He also provided his sister with $20 cash because she was going to get groceries for the apartment. Uh, Wallace stated that his sister was wearing slip-on shoes, yellow pants, and a yellow shirt. Wallace stated that he never saw his sister again, and that appears to be what she was wearing when she was killed. Nothing had struck him as out of the ordinary, although George admitted that his sister had been struggling with substance abuse and she wasn't home much at night. It was kind of her M.O. to be gone all night and then show up at around 6 a.m., which is why neither of them were worried when she didn't come home after George had seen her. Investigators also learned that Elizabeth had a criminal record made up of various misdemeanor charges. And while she was never charged with anything related to sex work, Detective Jacobson told us it's possible that she used sex work to get by. Although, again, it's never been proven. But despite her unpredictable lifestyle, she was still close to her family, so her brothers were able to tell investigators that she didn't have any known enemies. She did have a few close friends, though. George described them as, quote-unquote, boyfriends, but Detective Jacobson believes that they could have been clients that she was close with. And there were two in particular that George pointed to, Jack and Keith. Although George didn't know much about Keith, and spoiler alert, investigators were never able to track him down. But Jack was a different story. In fact, George said that he had gotten some calls from a man who he thought was Jack just the day before. The living room is where you make some of life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. 
take it from someone who has made the mistake. And I should have freaking known better because in our very first house, we got a sectional from Ashley's store and it was amazing. So beautiful, withstood a lot. I mean, Chuck is absolutely invited on all the furniture, but you couldn't tell. And that couch, after years of service, then supported our lazy butts during COVID when we binge watch show after show after show. Not even so much as an indent in my favorite cushion. Long story short, when we moved houses, I was like, oh, I'll get a new couch. It costs more money. It must be better. No, I hate it. It looks like we've had it for a zillion years. Meanwhile, the Ashley couch is still thriving at my brother's place. And as if their stuff wasn't quality before, the new high-performance furniture from Ashley Store is somehow even better. It's designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Listen, I have corrected all of my mistakes, and we now have their new high-performance durable furniture. I got it in this beautiful shade of blue. I got some chairs. Love them, love them, love them. So whether you're hosting and toasting or just enjoying furry friends, you can relax knowing you have the durability and convenience of Ashley Store's newest assortment of high-performance furniture. Shop the life-resistant high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. When it comes to travel, we all have that happy place that we're always dreaming about. Whether it's the snow-capped mountains, white sand beaches, a best friend's wedding, or even a hometown visit, we all have one. I mean, you're probably thinking of yours right now. Wherever your happy place is, Priceline wants to get you there for a happy price so you never have to miss a trip. And listen, as a mom, as a CEO, it's not easy for me to get away, or at least not far away. But ever since I was in college, I have been the queen of staycations. And hand to Bible, Priceline was my jam. I had it dialed in. I'd get four-star hotels for like 50 bucks a night and treat myself after a long work week and college classes. Every Vegas trip I ever took in my 20s was through Priceline. I couldn't even believe anyone ever booked anything another way. And Priceline is more than just hotels. Priceline lets you book your entire trip all in one place. So download the Priceline app today to save up to 60% off select hotels and go to your happy price with Priceline. One of the callers called the apartment several times on Friday, informing George to have his sister return his keys to call him back. He stated the call stopped between 10 and 11 p.m. on Friday. It was a confusing situation, but George was almost 100% sure that it was Jack who called. And each time he did, George told him that his sister didn't have any keys. So Jack jumped to the top of investigators' lists of people that they wanted to talk to. And thankfully, it was pretty easy to find him. Back at Elizabeth's apartment, investigators went through her personal belongings, and on a scrap piece of paper, they found a few phone numbers— and next to one of them was written the name Jack. Before investigators knew it, they were standing in front of Jack, asking about Elizabeth. The investigator showed Jack a picture of the victim, and he said, yeah, I know her. He's known her for about three years, and he spoke to her almost every day on the phone. Jack told investigators that he'd recently gotten out of rehab, and the two had hung out just hours before Elizabeth was killed. His Details are a bit fuzzy because they drank and had gotten high together. But he was confident that they hadn't been intimate that night, even though their relationship was sometimes sexual. He also remembered that everything seemed normal when she left. 
He stated that she left his apartment on Saturday morning very early between midnight and 2 a.m. Investigators also asked him about the phone call regarding the keys he was asking for. But Jack claimed George had gotten it all wrong. He said he made that call months ago, not within the last couple of days. He said it would have been impossible for him to have called the other day because he was still at the rehab facility. Now, based on everything Detective Jacobson told us, police at the time didn't go back and check with the facility to verify that he was actually there. But based on when he said everything went down, they were pretty sure that he wasn't the one who killed her. They just really used his statement to establish a timeline. So he's guessing midnight to 2 a.m. That woman doesn't hear anybody at 4.30, but I don't know if that means anything, and they find her at 7. So there's a five-hour window. There's also the matter of rigor mortis, which begins to set in at around two hours after someone dies and continues to make its way through the body for about six to eight hours, depending on the conditions. Since Elizabeth was found about five hours after she last saw Jack, that means that she was likely killed very shortly after she left his place. By the time investigators finished talking to Jack, the medical examiner had completed Elizabeth's autopsy, and the results revealed just how brutal her murder really was. The autopsy results revealed that the victim's cause of death was blunt trauma to the victim's head, neck, and chest area. The undersurface of the chin and the undersurface of the neck is abraded. The inside of the lower lip is lacerated. The jaw is fractured in its mid-portion. The larynx shows multiple fractures. The most disturbing part was that Detective Jacobson believes the blunt force trauma was from stomping. The killer likely got Elizabeth on the ground, then used their body weight to slam their foot down on her face and neck repeatedly until she died. Detective Jacobson couldn't find any mention of sexual assault in her autopsy report, which to him meant there was no evidence of it. But that didn't mean there wouldn't be any foreign DNA to work with. They collected anything and everything they could in hopes of finding forensic evidence to tie to a killer. They did two oral swabs from her mouth at the autopsy. They took her T-shirt, fingernail scrapings, blood scrapings from her. Then they took all of her clothing, so her slacks, her blouse, her underwear. There was a condom that was sealed, never used. Some of the blood scrapings from the sidewalk, from the drops, her shoes, the clump of hair that was out there, the green lighter, the earrings. They actually took a leaf that had some of her blood on it. They had a lot of samples to test, which were all sent to the lab. But the results would take some time. So as they were waiting, investigators continued talking to anyone who may have even had the slightest connection to Elizabeth. It was an uphill battle, though. Most people didn't want to talk to police because they, too, had struggles with substance use, or maybe they were involved in sex work. However, it wasn't long until they got what they hoped would be another lead. They were contacted by someone in the area who said that they might have found a piece of evidence connected to the murder. The day later, down the road a little bit on Huntington Street, there was a bush, and an anonymous caller calls the PD and says, hey, I know there was a girl that was killed down the road, but there's a white T-shirt out here with blood on it. Investigators rushed to find it, and luckily, they were able to locate it. It was a white Connecticut lottery T-shirt covered in blood spatter. They knew Elizabeth was wearing all her clothes, so if they found Elizabeth's blood on that shirt, that would mean it belonged to her killer. 
But that was a big if. So they sent it off for testing, too. But when all the test results came back a while later, investigators were disappointed. All of the blood at the crime scene was Elizabeth's. And nothing else they tested could point them to her killer either. Somehow, throughout the whole attack, whoever killed her wasn't so much as scratched by Elizabeth. Even that shirt they found was a bust. The blood on that was all someone else's. So we don't know, was it the bad guy that took it off and tossed it? Or was it just like another assault? Because that was a pretty violent area. Detective Jacobson told us that investigators at the time didn't think the T-shirt was related. And since it didn't have Elizabeth's blood on it, they didn't do much more with it. And I tend to agree. If it did belong to her killer and it was splattered with his blood, then why wasn't any of his blood at the scene where she died? Anyway, that shirt wasn't their last hope, though, because about a month after Elizabeth's murder, investigators were contacted by one of her sisters. She was really just passing on a message from another one of their brothers, this guy named Charles. And Charles was in prison at the time. But he wanted to talk. Since investigators didn't have any other leads, they agreed. And when they sat down with him, he said that he thought he knew who killed his sister. He said she had numerous friends on the street but couldn't remember their names. He added that she would probably get her crack on Huntington Street from one of the young boys. He added that the young boys were probably responsible for her sister's death because she f***ed up some young boy's dope. He had no basis for that statement other than speculation on his part. And I think he means, like, maybe she was supposed to sell it and didn't give the money back or something to that effect. It seemed like a good lead, but just like the T-shirt, it ended up being another dead end. Police couldn't track down any of the men that she might have purchased drugs from, and without names, there wasn't much more they could do. But Detective Jacobson told us that investigators did everything in their power to keep the ball rolling. They interviewed everyone they could and used the technology available to them. But frankly, they just didn't have the resources we do today, almost 30 years later. I I would say that in today's world, that area is covered with surveillance cameras. So we would probably catch a car, somebody running, or something to that effect. And maybe uh, they could have done some type of DNA testing, like, right away. Their level of detail and their reports were incredible, especially today we have the luxury of computers and video and DNA and everything else. These guys really, for 1994, they went above and beyond. Elizabeth's case eventually went cold, and years began to pass without any new leads. That is until July 2001, around seven years later. That's when another local woman was found murdered. On July 22nd of that year, 37-year-old Alicia Ford was found partially nude just less than a mile from where Elizabeth had been killed. Just as a side note, we've heard her name pronounced as Alicia as well. But for consistency, we're going to refer to her as Alicia. Now, right away, there were a ton of coincidences that stood out to investigators who had worked on Elizabeth's case. For instance, Alicia had died from blunt force trauma to the neck and face, and there was a bloody boot print found on her torso, clear as day. She was also a suspected sex worker, though she hadn't been charged with anything related to sex work. Now, Unlike Elizabeth's murder, there was more evidence left behind. In addition to the bloody boot print, police found a Newport brand cigarette butt near her body. So just like in Elizabeth's case, they sent everything they had off for testing. 
And while they waited for results, investigators on Elizabeth's case couldn't get over the similarities. So they started looking into a possible connection. And I don't think anything could have prepared them for what they found. Why not grocery shop from the comfort of your couch? With Thrive Market, the no-junk-food healthy grocery store, you can. I've been gearing up for summer trying to get myself in shape, and I actually have been getting all of my whey protein and collagen powders from Thrive Market. Not just from Thrive Market, but I get the Thrive Market brand, which is delicious, priced super well, and I feel like it's a brand that I can trust because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods, and they restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. Save time and money as a Thrive Market member on every single grocery order. On average, customers save over 30% each time. They even have a deals page that changes daily. Save time and money and shop Thrive Market today. Go to thrivemarket.com slash deck for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash deck. Thrivemarket.com slash deck. When it comes to your health, there should be no compromises. Don't go back to that doctor who doesn't fully listen to you or rushes through your appointment. Instead, check out ZocDoc. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Search by location, availability, and insurance. No compromises. And these doctors all have verified reviews from actual real patients. And you don't have to wait forever to get in with someone good. When I looked online, the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score some same-day appointments. Go to ZocDoc.com deck and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash deck. ZocDoc the more investigators dug, they began to see a pattern. Elizabeth and Alicia weren't the only ones who had died in this area in this same way. Over the last two years, there had been three others with a similar victimology, all in the Asylum Hills area, who had all been killed in the same way. The first was 28-year-old LaDawn Roberts, who was pregnant when she was found brutally beaten to death on the back porch of an abandoned building in June 1999. About a year later, in April 2000, Aida Quinones was found partially nude, also beaten to death. The 33-year-old was lying in the mud on the outskirts of downtown Hartford. In June of that same year, Rosalind Casey was found under a railroad bridge. She was 32 years old. Investigators spent weeks digging into these cases, trying to build the connections, which led them to a statewide task force, which led them to even more victims. Somewhere between 15 and 20 women that had similar victimology. They were all dead. And then it was like strangulation, some were stompings, some were stabbings. And they were trying to connect the dots. Out of the 15 to 20 women who were investigated by the task force, Hartford police ended up determining that these five women, Elizabeth, LaDawn, Aida, Rosalind, and Alicia, had likely been killed by the same man. But they weren't related to the others. 
These five fit similar profiles. They were all women of color, believed to participate in sex work. All of them struggled with substance use and didn't have permanent residences. And they were all killed in very similar ways. Some of them were strangled, but all of them had their necks and skulls crushed by blunt force trauma, likely stomping. Also, Newport cigarettes were found at multiple crime scenes. And while those weren't found at Elizabeth's, investigators couldn't help but remember that green lighter by her body. Now, for some reason, not all the evidence in the other murders was tested. And I'm not sure if it was because the technology just wasn't there or the investigators just decided not to test it or what. But this time around, they sent a ton of stuff to the lab, like blood samples and clothing. And sure enough, they got a DNA profile that didn't belong to any of the victims. And they got that same DNA profile from both Alicia and Aida's crime scenes. They thought that surely this violent offender had a history. He was going to be easy to find. But frustratingly, when they uploaded the profile to the state DNA databases, they didn't get a hit, which was all the more reason they needed to find this guy, and fast, because he was likely still out there, on the streets, operating undetected, and he could kill again at any moment. And investigators were right to be worried about that. Because on August 29th, the body of another woman was found. 33-year-old Rosalie Jimenez was found stomped to death in an abandoned building. She was partially clothed with one pant leg pulled down, and a bloody footprint was found on her hand and arm. During her autopsy, the medical examiner discovered semen on her body, which matched the DNA samples from Alicia and Aida's cases. But no matter how many matching samples they had, there wasn't anyone to match them to. And since they didn't have DNA in Elizabeth, Rosalind, and LaDawn's cases, they still needed to dig up physical evidence in order to prove that they were killed by the same man as the other three. And investigators would actually get that sooner than expected. Because in January of 2002, they finally got a hit on the killer's DNA. The profile was a match for a man named Matthew Stephen Johnson. He was 38 years old and had an extensive rap sheet full of violent crimes dating all the way back to when he was just 19. He tried to kill a security guard during an attempted robbery at a church in Asylum Hills and had served four years of a 10-year sentence. Over the following years, he committed several violent crimes against women, primarily sex workers, So police could see that there had been a clear pattern of escalation over the past 20 years. Detective Jacobson didn't know what crime he had committed to get his DNA uploaded to the state databases. And when I looked it up, all I found was an article from the Hartford Current that his DNA was added to Connecticut's sex offender database. But regardless of what he did, Matthew came back as a match and police immediately set out to find him. And thankfully, it wasn't that difficult, even though he was experiencing homelessness at the time of his arrest. And wouldn't you know it, when they found him, he had a pack of Newport cigarettes in his possession. Matthew was charged with three of the six homicides, Alicia's, Aida's, and Rosalie's, to which he pled not guilty. But a jury didn't believe him. And in 2004, he was convicted and received three consecutive life sentences. So he is never going to be able to harm any of the women in Asylum Hills area ever again. But here's the thing. Even though his M.O. fits Elizabeth, Rosalind, and LaDawn's murders, like, to a T, 
they're all still technically unsolved. I think because they were focusing on the other murders and they wanted to make sure that they got those solid and get them arrested on those, they did not have any DNA connecting him. It seems like his behavior is consistent with Elizabeth, but there was just no science making the connection. Even though they're still technically unsolved, Detective Jacobson had his own opinions, at least when it comes to Elizabeth's case. It was Johnson, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty pretty comfortable with it, but I wasn't there and I don't know for sure. And I'm, I'm hoping that a little science and maybe some interviews will get me to that point. And the interview could include talking to Matthew himself. Detective Jacobson hasn't interviewed Matthew yet. There's some red tape that he has to get through first before he can go sit down with him. But he isn't ruling out any other suspects that might pop up along the way. In fact, he wants to get a lot of the evidence in her case retested now that technology has improved. There's actually a university in New Jersey. A woman called me from there, and they'll do all the testing for me for familial genetic genealogy for free. Detective Jacobson has been working on Elizabeth's case off and on for the last several years. And back in 2015, he submitted a bunch of evidence for testing again, hoping that the lab could find something to place Matthew or even someone else at the scene of her murder. They didn't get anything. Still, he's not getting discouraged. 25 times. I've probably looked at it 25 times. Always trying to do like a little move. You know, working on cold cases is really a chess game and you're moving pawns back and forth trying to get the right combination. Or like a Rubik's Cube. You just, you never know what's going to make it kind of go together. The more times you move stuff around, the more times you look at it, eventually it'll come together. Once I learned about Elizabeth's case and looked at everything our reporter put together, I couldn't help but wonder if maybe there was someone else out there who could be connected. I know Matthew Johnson looks really good for it, but there are some inconsistencies. Take the cigarette butts, for example. Maybe he just decided not to smoke after he killed Elizabeth, but they were present at Alicia's, Aida's, and Rosalie's crime scenes. Seems almost like a ritual for him. So, me being me, I decided to take a little deep dive into other homicides in Hartford in the 90s, to turn the Rubik's Cube around a few times, if you will. And I found something interesting. It seems a little out there at first, but it comes back around, so stick with me. According to reporting by Josh Conover for the Hartford Current, back in October 1997, so this is three years after Elizabeth's murder, there was this Hartford police officer who I'm going to call Juan. Juan's girlfriend, Rosa, and their four-year-old daughter, Rosita, went missing. Now, automatically, all of the red flags should be going up from people who knew them because Juan was 36, Rosa was 21, and Rosita was four. So if you do the math, Juan and Rosa were together when he was in his 30s and she was 16 or 17. And this is a Hartford police officer, everyone. Now, I couldn't find who reported them missing. All I know is that they were last seen alive on a street corner in downtown Hartford by Juan. And then they just vanished. Police looked at Juan first, since he was the last one to see them, and there were some suspicious coincidences, like some scratches on his body and the fact that he was off work on the day that they went missing. But investigators at the time didn't have enough evidence to charge him with anything, and he denied being involved. So Rosa and Rosita stayed missing, until a month later, when Rosa's body was discovered in a lake in New Jersey. 
Her head and her hands had been cut off, and although I couldn't find her cause of death, her manner of death was homicide. Rosita was still missing, and to this day, she still hasn't been found. In November of 1998, police raided the house that he had shared with Rosa and Rosita, and they seized what they believed were possible murder weapons, like a handmade hatchet. They also searched his car, where they found a wire garrote, which is basically a length of wire rope that is consistent with strangulation. The car was also missing its trunk liner, and it looked like the bottom of the trunk had been sanded down, which obviously isn't normal. But that's not all. They also found a map of New Jersey that Juan had drawn a route on, which led to an area close to where Rosa's body was discovered. He also had this really disturbing collection of books on serial killers and how to commit the perfect murder. Again, police officer, you guys. But apparently, none of this was enough to arrest him and charge him for Rosa's murder or Rosita's disappearance. He was publicly named a suspect, but again, wasn't charged. And he still hasn't been charged to this day. Now, I know you're probably wondering how all of that relates to Elizabeth's murder. Well, even though he was never charged with Rosa's homicide, he had a history of targeting and sexually assaulting sex workers in Hartford while on duty. He actually lost his job and was convicted for one of those assaults, for which he was sentenced to 10 years. And while he never killed any of them, the potential escalation of violence is something I can't help but think about. And again, this might be a huge stretch, and I could just be connecting dots where there aren't any dots to connect. But I at least asked Detective Jacobson about this, and I thought his response was interesting. He basically said that he couldn't comment on whether this man has ever been considered a suspect. Now, to be super clear, that no comment means I should point out that Juan has never been officially named a suspect in Elizabeth's case. At the end of the day, Detective Jacobson told us that whether it's Juan or Matthew or somebody else, giving Elizabeth's family the closure that they deserve is what matters the most. At this point in my life and my career and kind of understanding some of this stuff, I think it's more important for victims' families to kind of understand who is responsible and maybe why. That's more important to me. If you have any information about the murder of Elizabeth Miller in June 1994, or the murders of Rosalind Casey and LaDawn Roberts, also in Hartford in June of 2000 and 1999, respectively, please contact the Connecticut Cold Case Tip Line at 866-623-8058 or email tips to coldcase at ct.gov. The Deck is an audio Chuck production with theme music by Ryan Lewis. To learn more about The Deck and our advocacy work, visit thedeckpodcast.com. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve? Here's to the paper pushers, the rush hour warriors, and the gotta get awayers. Trade the daily grind for a place to unwind, where you can rise with the tide and roll down the boardwalk where you can eat french fries for lunch and ice cream for dinner, where your only commute is your walk to the beach, where every day feels like Saturday. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. 
Book your trip at Oceocean.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.